If you would, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 5 this morning. John chapter 5. We have looked to this point over the past several months, and the first four chapters of John's gospel, we have seen the reality that Jesus is the one full of grace and truth. He is the one who was in the beginning before all beginnings. He is the one who declares to the most learned in Israel that you must be born again, and he is the one who gives to the lowly a water welling up into eternal life. He is the light that will never be overtaken by the darkness of our world. He is, in fact, as the Samaritan has told us, the Savior of the world. And that's the entire emphasis of the first four chapters. The entire emphasis here, again, is that the cosmos, that everything, cosmos, cosmos, that everything that exists today exists as a theater for the redemption and the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, we now turn to chapters 5 through 8. Now some of you are going to say, hold on, pump the brakes. Uh, You skipped some verses. And we keep track. Uh, You'll notice that the second miracle is the the closing uh, to these first four chapters. And we stopped at verse 45, verse 46 rather, last week. I'm not skipping it. I'm deferring it. Um, Many of you know that Becky Smith passed away this past Monday, and in God's kind providence, Sarah and I were able to be there with Linda and Russell, and uh, there's one part of ministry that I'm not getting any better at with time, and that's saying goodbye to the people that I love in this congregation. And so as I continued uh, to work through those verses, Boy, they have Becky Smith all wrapped up in them, and I've decided that on a Sunday morning nobody wants a weeping prophet, and they speak so clearly to what uh, the Smith family has gone through and what I want to say there at, um, at Becky's memorial service in a few weeks, so I will be handling those verses there. Uh, in the margins of my Bible, in fact, is written Becky Smith uh, next to that, that passage, Sarah I talked this over with her a little bit. I kept getting up in the middle of the night and having fits with the text and uh, emotional responses. And, and Sarah said, I just don't know that you should skip it. And I said, well, we're, again, we're not skipping it. We're deferring it. And we're also going to see how nosy this church is. And we'll show up and uh, rejoice together in, in that portion. Now, what I do want to say before we move on, what I think the emphasis of that second miracle, uh, the healing of the nobleman's son, points to, is here is an individual who belongs to the, um, the service of Herod, and he is coming uh, to Christ for the healing of his son. And I think packaged all together, what we see then is that Jesus does his miracles there at the wedding and um, closing with this last miracle. And what he's pointing to, not only has he 
interacted with those in Judea and brought the message there, Samaria, and then Galilee, but also to this Gentile who has an ailing son. And, and the emphasis, again, of those first four chapters is what? It's that, it's that everything that exists, all of the power structures, all of the furniture, everything exists as a, as a theater for the redemption of Christ to declare that He is the Savior of the world. And what do we find Christ doing in the first four chapters but reaching out to every constituent group and it, that concludes with those who are even. If you were a Jew at this time, you would have said Judea, yes, Galilee, yes, Samaria, hmm. Herod's people? You're bringing salvation to them? You're going to heal that boy from afar off? Uh, that would be outside of the, the thought process of the Jews of the day. And so that's really what the text illustrates. Um, it's showing us in practical ways. Jesus isn't, as the Samaritan has said, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now, if that was modern religion, it would just be a, a banner statement to get people in the building to fill out a card and do some religious practice. But what the Samaritans have heralded and what John has recorded under the inspiration of the Spirit of God is an actual reality that Jesus really bears out in the works that He is doing. So Christ really is the Savior of the world, and that is the emphasis of the second miracle um, that we have here in the text. Now, by my calculation, that's the first time I've preached through seven verses in under ten minutes, but there you have the truth and the emphasis and import of that text. So with that in mind, if you would stand as we read together the opening verse to chapter 5. John writing here, having concluded in chapter 4, helping us to understand the reality that we live in darkness, but the light has come into the world, and the darkness will not overcome that light. That, that truth stands true today. Now we turn to chapters 5 through 8, which begin with this one verse, often obscured and ignored. Written under the inspiration of the Spirit of Almighty God, John writes, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This is God's word to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into your presence thankful for your word, thankful for, for all that it teaches, thankful to, to know you, the one true living triune God who has orchestrated all things for the glory of Christ and for the redemption of those that you have called before the foundation of the world. Might you write the truths that we learn today on all of our hearts, and mold us more into the image of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Again, the, the first four chapters capture the essence of Christ as Savior of the world. So, the next four chapters, chapters 5 through 8, we're going to spend a little bit of time here have an emphasis as well. And that emphasis is the opposition of the religious elite, the opposition of the world, in that sense, to the message of the first four chapters. Christ is Savior of the world, and the second uh, notable reality that John wants us to understand is that the world around us will not receive this truth apart from grace. There is no event you can construct 
There is no uh, emotional twisting that you can perform. There is no human means in, in, in the ultimate sense by which you can bring people to agree that Christ is genuinely the Savior that He says He is apart from the work of the Spirit of God. And here in four chapters, John illustrates this reality. Some have made this a point of theological ambiguity and of argument, but here in John's writing, John says, don't just take my word for it. Look at how the world responds to the person and to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows particularly the opposition of the religious elite in Jerusalem at the time. These uh, chapters are a case study also in the perseverance of our Lord in the service of His Father. And so they serve and as, a, as an example uh, of our persevering in our own generation, in our own particular calling, and in our own particular role to do the will of God in our own generation before we are called home. You know, we all must live with a purpose. But, but if we're going to accomplish anything, Brian has to go through uh, with our city many planning meetings to figure out the purpose and the direction of the city. The, the Revolutionary War of this country uh, was, was fought as, uh, as a referendum against the tyranny of taxation without representation. Now, that war didn't just happen. There was a, com a clear purpose of why it happened. Educational institutions exist to deposit knowledge in the coming generation and to complete research. There's clear uh, reasons and, and inside of that umbrella statement, each individual educational institution will have a particular aim of how to educate and what segment of the population and what educational disciplines they will pursue. If you go to the doctor, most of us, now some of you just like going to the doctor, God bless you, but most of us go because we want uh, a physician to, to diagnose us and to treat whatever is ailing us. There is a purpose to going. Uh, Washington, D.C. I'm certain that it has a purpose, but I thought for a long time and I can't quite figure it out. Uh, and I'm certain that the people that go there can't figure it out. But there is a purpose. And what we learned in verse 34 of chapter 4 was this glorious truth. Jesus said, my Father is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. The purpose of Christ was to do that all that God had, had sent Him to do. To complete the work of redemption. We, we use the phrase, the works of Christ. It was, it was satisfying to, to the Son to obey the Father and to accomplish these works. Beloved, I would contend with you this morning, one of the great problems that face uh, the church today is the reality that there is no firm resolve or purpose in the church. Uh, most Christians today live by whim, not by truth. Uh, we live by what we feel, not by what we know. And that puts the church in a very imperiled position. Because if you look throughout church history, the church has existed not on its feelings, but on the clear doctrines that the Word of God teaches. We live to pursue holiness. We are called to be witnesses in a world full of darkness. We are called to know the Word of God and to give an answer for it 
in season and out of season. But we often give up these purposes, don't we? We often throw them aside and just live in the moment, as it were. And the question is, why? Why is it that so many of us, that all of us, neglect the will of God in our own lives at times? My argument with you this morning will be, in light of that question, we ignore the will of God. We don't find the will of God satisfying. I I wonder if every church in the United States of America today determined to preach Christ and Him crucified, and in light of that, the purposes that God has for His children, come, learn to live in light of the purposes that God has for you. I wonder how long that would last in the church today. It's not entertaining. It's not funny. It's not emotionally stirring. Because to live the will of God in your own generation often causes difficulty. As Charles Spurgeon, we're going to have pancakes this afternoon. And just as a brief commercial break, I want to deal with something uh, publicly that was said privately. Normally I wouldn't do this. My dear wife is over with some others making pancakes for us right now. Amy Andrews suggested last night that they cook them all last night and then just freeze them and thaw them out this morning. That is heretical in my opinion. I just want you all to know that we're guarding you against such things. It, It is very efficient, but see, efficiency, boy, there's a whole conversation there. I said all of that to say this. Charles Spurgeon was the one, I believe, who said that there's difficulty in everything but eating pancakes. So we're about to experience in an hour or so that part of life that doesn't require difficulty. Everything else that God calls us to by His will requires some exertion and it calls us to a life that is difficult. And that leads me to the, the reasons why we walk away from living for the will of God. The first, and we're going to deal with this today, the second we'll deal with in the coming weeks, but the two pitfalls are succinctly this, hostility and the danger of success. The reason why we don't pursue the will of God in our own generation is because we live in a world that is hostile to the will of God. And we don't want to experience that hostility. What we have in these chapters, again, is a study of the life of Christ in the face of these two pitfalls. We see in His unflinching example the radiance of the light overcoming the darkness. In in the end, we find the, the Lord faithful even on His way to the cross. And so what do we find this morning? Uh, what is it? Why did John choose to lead into this, to, 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 to move from chapter 4 into chapter 5 at this point? And friends, if you know me, you know that I would say that these numbers, the, the big numbers, the chapter numbers, and the little numbers, the, the verse numbers were added. They are not insp- inspired. And often I am frustrated by where uh, we've chosen to make breaks in the text. Chapter 4, chapter 5 of John is not one of those places. It's a good break in the text. It it, it is where there is a pivoting point in what is happening. We've heard in four chapters, Christ is the Savior of the world. And in so many ways, we've had that described. And now here we find John leading in. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Why, Why does He speak in this way? 
Well, well, verse 1 draws our attention away from Galilee and into Jerusalem and really to a new class of people. If you're not careful, you'll read that verse as though it were just a segue to reposition us geographically. But I believe that when you take it in light of everything that's going to be said in chapters 5-8, through really what he is doing is he's drilling down on a particular class of people. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The, the, Jesus went up to Jerusalem is more of a parenthetical, uh, and the first part, the first phrase is more of the emphasis of what the statement is here. The, the Jews here, then, are not all Jews without exception. This is not an ethnic statement. The Jews is not everyone who is comprised in the nation of Israel at this particular time. This is, in fact, the Jews with distinction. Jesus is, or excuse me, John is pointing here to the leaders that would have lorded over the, the, the ceremonies, the feasts there in Jerusalem. He's speaking about the religious elite. This designation the Jews, is interestingly, and we've talked about last week the, the use that, of words, that John's economy of words, and you've got to pay attention to that. Uh, the Gospels don't use the word world very much. John uses it 108 or 105 times, I think. Um, he uses it disproportionately to the other Gospel synoptic writers. And here we find that only about a half a dozen times do the synoptic Gospels use the phrase the Jews. And often, uh, it's in the pejorative context referring to Christ as King of the Jews. But in John's Gospel, we see this the Jews, this phrase, used 70 times. Some of them are used, uh, uh, of course, ethnically as a Jews without distinction. Uh, some of them are, are in reference positively. But in general, it's used negatively of these elite class of Jews who were opposed to Christ and to His Gospel. John makes this distinction between the Jews in general and the Jews who were against the Gospel. That's what he's doing here. We, we can't just read the Jews without a clear delineation of the group that, that John is, is talking about. It is those hostile Jewish leaders who are now brought forward. The, the emphasis of, of verse 1 of chapter 5 is to put front and center a group of people who are opposed to the grace and to the Gospel of Almighty God. That is the emphasis here. In the first four chapters of John, remember, uh, de de declaring that Jesus is, Christ is the Savior of the world, there is a favorable response to Christ. From John the Baptist to the Judeans, the Samaritans, the Galileans, even in that last narrative in chapter 4, uh, an individual of the household and service of King Herod. But there is one exception all throughout the narrative and distinctly in these chapters, and that one exception is the religious ruling class of Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees those who were in positions of authority. I want to read for you just briefly. Uh, the, the, I read this this morning and I thought about this is the glorious reality that, that we are studying in John. John's Gospel is bound up with the works of Christ. And here, Robert Letham begins his work on the works of Christ. The phrase, the work of Christ, seems dry, ponderous, 
an expression to use of the heart of the Christian faith. Christ's death on the cross, His glorious resurrection, His startling message of the kingdom of God are all realities with dynamic power. Lives, nations, whole civilizations have been changed and reshaped by the risen Christ. In the 20th century, the crushing weight of militant totalitarian atheism has failed to halt the impact of Jesus Christ. His weak, beleaguered followers in the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe after decades of oppression have not merely survived. Christianity has prospered, while atheistic communism is on the verge of collapse. There is no new story. It will surely be repeated again in the future. The work of Christ, limp as the phrase sounds, actually stands for the most significant realities we ever face. How can we know God? How can we have a right relationship with God? How, how can we be forgiven? Can we know that what lies beyond the grave? How can the death of a man 2,000 years ago help us today? And the answer comes in the realities of the person and the work of Christ. And beloved, what is being raised before your eyes this morning in John chapter 5 verse 1 is a group of people that were opposed to this gospel to the person of Christ and to his works a people snarling at the redemptive work of God beloved I believe with every fiber of my being that the Bible does not suffer fools that come to it without an understanding and a framework in some sense of a historical reality in which the Bible was written. There are some people that come to the Bible so that they can find the phrase, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and apply that to making pancakes and everything in between. That's not the purpose of the Bible. We have to understand the, the, the historical nature uh, surrounding the Bible. And, and what we need to see here, the ESV at times is such a blessing, and at other times it's such a frustration. Uh, here we'll find the words after this. It's kind of a passing phrase. In other translations, we'll find the words translated sometime later, uh, em emphasizing and pointing to the reality that there is a break of time between chapters 4 and chapter 5. And, and I would contend with you this morning that that's a reality. There is a lapse in time. And there is historical events that take place in between that lapse of those two chapters. And so the question is, historically, what happened? Well, several things. And I'm going to try to just highlight the big things that have happened and not delve into things that would be controversial. One, the Jews had lost jurisdiction over capital crimes. The Sanhedrin no longer had power under Roman authority to punish capital crimes the way that they once had. They had to abandon what was called the Great Hall of Hewn Stone, the place where the Sanhedrin gathered to hear cases and to pronounce judgments. They were banished into the market street. They were, they were treated as something less. And you'll know that if there's a political faction, one of the reasons in our own generation why when a, any particular president tries to do something in our current system of government is that it's difficult because there are so many bureaucracies that have been built around that position that for that president to move those bureaucracies around gets pushback from a whole new class of people. 
Well, that's what's happening here. The Sanhedrin have been banished to the market. They've been disenfranchised. We'll see the reality in the time of Christ's arrest and, and trial before Pilate that he couldn't be brought before the Sanhedrin. He had to go to Pilate uh, to be tried. And this outworking of the loss of authority is one that shapes part of the sinful expression of the religious elite. Secondly, what had happened, the, the Rome, because of uh, Roman activity and oppression, uh, when there is oppression and tyranny, what is a historical, again, reality, even if you remove from this context, when, when, when totalitarianism begins to build as a, as a downward movement, there is always uprising. There's always a rebellion against that. Happens in homes, happens in civil governments. Um, so, so what we see in a historical context is that as the hand of Rome starts to be weigh heavy on the people, there is a, an increase in the expression of uh, the zealots during this time. When I was in college, I probably shared this story with some of you, we had to do projects on the Essenes and the zealots and all of the different people that surround the gospel of Christ to try to bring it to life. And as I was sitting in my, one of my first classes, I believe it was Life of Christ, we're sitting there and my professor says, okay, I want the zealots to come forward. And as college students often do, most of us just kind of, you know, we're just barely ambulatory at 9 a.m. in the morning. And so we kind of saunter up to the front, we mumble out our speech, we get our grade, we go home. Well, whoever had come up with the zealots expression of, of getting us to understand who these, this class of people was, they did a great job because he said zealots come forth and about seven people in the class just stood up, jumped on the table and started screaming at the rest of us. And boy, at nine o'clock in the morning, that'll get your heart beaten. And that's who these people were. They were militant. They were going to... to undo the tyrannical power of Rome. And of course, the, the, the Jewish leaders at this time understood this reality. That the more that the zealots push back, the more that Rome is going to come down on us. The, the more problems we have inside the community and the more difficulty that we present to the Roman authorities, the more we're going to have all of Rome after us. And so this also colors what's going on at the time. John the Baptist has also been executed by this time, I, I believe. I think that's conjecture a little bit, but I believe that that's accurate. If you look at verse 24, you'll find this parenthetical. For John had not yet been sent to prison. And then in chapter 5, verses 33 and 35... John is spoken of in the past tense. You sent John, and he has borne witness of the truth, not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may, have, may be saved. He was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. There is a, a time frame that is given there, and it seems to be that in this gap of, of, of time that John the Baptist has been put to death. So there are all of these things going on culturally, historically, around Christ. Now, of course, the one major presenting sin for the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that they are sinful men living under the weight of their sin. But it's no wonder that they reacted to Jesus in the sinful way that they did as they looked to him as just another potential danger, both against their own authority and in some sense inciting more punishment uh, from Rome. 
And when Jesus comes before them, think about this. We've got to get our minds wrapped around this if we're ever going to interpret the rest of chapter 5 accurately. Jesus comes and he declares himself to be equal with the Father. All of these other pressures are going on. The Sanhedrin has lost its authority. The Pharisees are, are living under the frustration that so many people are following after Jesus and their authority is being whittled away. And then Jesus just outright claims to be equal with the Father. And so their rage boils over. And yet, in the face of all of the hostility that we know from reading our Gospels well from the Sanhedrin and from the Pharisees, the hostility towards Jesus did not deter Him from doing the will of the Father. It did not bring Him to a point to neglect the works that He came to do. Martin Luther has rightly said, we who endeavor to please God and not, not man stir up hell itself. Friends, it's true for Christ. It's also true for us. If we are going to live in light of the substantive graces of God and of His meritorious works in Christ alone, we are going to make a lot of religious people unhappy. So do you live in such a way that when you are experiencing hostility from religious people or from secular people in the culture, that you buckle under that pressure? That you cower away from the difficulty of the hostility of this world? That, that you begin to soften the edges of the Gospel to please men? There's a reality in many theological circles where men are not seeking to do theology in light of how God has revealed Himself. Men are simply seeking to please a certain theological framework. I feel that in the Baptist movement, and I know it's true in every movement. We get into, this is what people do. Dallas, we get into camps, and then we defend our camp instead of looking at the Word and keeping our eyes fixed on Christ seeking to live our lives for His glory. Be very careful that you don't allow fitting into a camp. And, and I, I'm challenged by this all the time as I read through the Word. We must allow the Word of God to live above all of our theological positions. And there will be times when the text critiques our theology. And the issue is, do you have a heart that rests in the grace of God willing to have your, your authoritarian view or your, your view of theology critiqued? Or are you going to stiffen up the way the Pharisees do and say, I'm planting my flag in this theological camp. Here I stand. There are a lot of fools that have done that throughout church history. And time proves out that some of those theological positions don't hold sway. We have to be careful about how we handle the convictions we have. We should always hold our convictions open to the Word of God. Living the Christian life is often not allowing the world and all of its tyranny of atheism and totalitarianism to push you away from the convictions that God has actually brought you to through His Word, while at the same time living in humility before God, allowing Him to change your mind about what you once understood. I can't tell you how many times that's happened in my Christian walk. The number of times that a dear brother or sister in Christ has pushed back in my theology. And I know what it means to live as a Pharisee because when people do that, I often go, mm. 
Now, I may not do that outwardly. Sarah's seen me do it outwardly. Sarah's seen me walk through the door and say, I think they're ridiculous. I've had dear friends in here who have told me, sent me emails, whatever, I think you're wrong, and I've thought, you're wrong. And boy, the Lord over a week's time can surely bring a man low. Oh, you're wrong. You need to continue. That's part of what's going on here. The Pharisees had the oracles of God, but they were living in authority over the Word of God. They were not living under the authority of the Word of God. That is a danger in every person's life. Redeemed. For sure. Jesus did not allow the hostility to overtake him. There's something else that he didn't allow to overtake him as well. So, so he was not a coward. The, the modern he gets us Jesus, and just to be clear and put something to bed, if you want my position on the he gets us movement, the problem with that movement is they don't get him. They don't know him. They're trying all that the he gets us movement. Boy, this ain't we got to move on. That movement is simply a capitulation to the culture. Bringing Jesus to be molded in the likeness of sinful man. It's blasphemy. It's not cute. It will be judged. But Jesus didn't respond in hosti- to the hostility. He wasn't a coward. He, wasn't, he was gentle and lowly, but He wasn't cowardly. Secondly, He didn't... He didn't allow their hostility. Their hostility always remained their problem. It never became His. He never became bitter towards these people. He didn't become hardened. Now I can tell you that this is a hard thing for, for those of us who are not Christ. To not become embittered and arrogant is a difficult reality in our lives. I can remember almost eight years ago today, the very first Sunday that I was officially pastor of this church, I walked through that set of doors and one of uh, my sisters in Christ leaned over to me and said, now, don't become bitter. And I remember not even getting halfway down this aisle before I thought, is that really a problem in ministry? And we're just going to click our heels together and be happy. Oh, how foolish. How foolish. I began to understand the temptation towards bitterness and struggle with it to this very day. Anyone who contends for the faith once for all delivered to the saints will have to press against and deal with the bitterness that will well up in their own sinful heart. Because here's the fact. We want to be right. But we are all liars in compared with His Word and His truth. A heart that is free from bitterness, I can tell you on the authority of the Word of God this morning, is not one apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus really did demonstrate a meekness and a compassion to these people who were hostile to Him. Not only can bitterness dominate the individual life, I've seen brothers in Christ who have become so embittered towards their particular ministerial context or towards their spouse or towards their children or towards the providences that God has laid upon them. The fact is, if Satan can't get you to buckle under the pressure of the hostility of a world that is set against Christ, he'll settle for allowing you to become bitter 
so that you will not be used in the hands of God. Christ didn't buckle to either of these pressures. Now, not only can we become embittered individually, we also see that the reality is nations can take on an embittered spirit. Political parties are ripe with bitterness towards their opposing party. I've told you that I love, I love uh, British politics, the House of Commons, the idea that uh, the president and all of his cabinet would sit on one side and the other side gets to grill them. But part of what you see at times is an expression of bitterness between parties. And friends, it's so common to humanity to look at an entire class of people and to think that you're justified in your bitterness. Well, that particular reality, some have said, is what has happened in the entire class of the Christian church. That what happens is people read John chapter 1 and they see these words. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And the way that the church reads that is ethnically. That all of the Jewish people ethnically are the enemy of the church. That they are the ones that we should be opposed to. And so some, and have been opposed to. And so some claim that the church historical has been so hostile to the Jewish people that what we must do, if anybody ever tells you to use deconstruction in your thinking, deconstruct that person and move on. They will say that you must deconstruct all of church history so that we can arrive at the right conclusions because the church has just been a racist, um, embittered organization, uh, and so it's wrong in all of its foundation. And we have to ask the question, is that, is that true? Do we need to re reject all of what the church has done in the past? Because we do see hateful expressions at particular times. The answer is, is no. Some point to, and this happens in different ways, and I hear it all the time as a pastor theologian, and, and it, look, I want to wrestle for good theology, but I don't want to shoot my friends in the process. And I've got friends on all different theological sides. And what we do often is we make big statements, bellicose, against the opposing theological perspective to prove our point. This is, it's, it's an ad hominem kind of attack. If I don't like Brian's position, I'll just attack Brian instead of dealing with the truth that he believes. Friends, that kind of argumentation should never sway the Christian. And volumes fill church history because we don't like what somebody else says theologically, so we'll just, well, we'll slander them so that their position won't hold. If you ever want to do a case study in that, you think John Wesley was a great guy? He was a slanderer and a gossip. Hated the theology that George Whitfield stood for. And some of the most beautiful, stirring words come from George Whitfield, who was not also given to buckle under the hostility of John Wesley, and he didn't become bitter. That's beautiful. John Newton does the same thing. Brian reads on controversy every year because he needs to. No, because it's a great article, a great encouragement. There's a way that we've lost in our modern times the idea of being gentlemen in our pursuit of the truth. And I don't mean that in a cowardly way. I mean it in a way that would glorify the Lord. And here the argument often is we'll get into a camp and we'll accuse an entire group of people. I've, I've certainly experienced that.
Friends, I've experienced, as we're dealing with the, uh, uh, the ethnic side of the people of Israel inside the church in my own generation, I've found people who seemingly edge on the, on the, on the side of almost idolizing the, the nation of Israel. And I've also found people, pastors that I've spoken with, who because Jewish people are unrepentant and unbelieving at this moment, they almost demonize them. And what I, I tend to think is not in categories of which camp am I in the, theologically, especially uh, when it comes to how we handle that nation eschatologically, and I'll deal with that just a bit, uh, but w what I tend to see is we're never called to set in judgment and either idolize or de demonize an entire ethnic group of people. The gospel does not call us to that in any way at any time. So we have to be careful as we move forward. I, I, I remember being in Washington, D.C. With, um, with my son, and we walked into the National Holocaust Museum. And if you're ever in Washington, D.C., I highly commend that memorial and that museum to you. You walk in uh, and through different exhibits. There's one exhibit, and when you... if, if oh, it still gives me goosebumps. You, you walk in and, and there is a train track that is laid in front of you and on either side of you are shoes that are piled up to the ceiling. And you get the sense and reality that the, the Jewish people have been so persecuted um, and hated uh, and, and that Satan is still at this time in the 40s and today is railing against this small group of people who the oracles were handed to us through. Uh, who have many advantages, Paul teaches us. You make it through those places and then you walk into a room and, and I mean, probably 30-foot ceilings and there are pictures that were all taken from homes where Jews were massacred. Uh, you, there's a, a children's exhibit and I remember going through the children's exhibit going, bull. I mean, this is, this is if, this, if you want to mess up your childhood, here's a way to do it. You walk through this children's exhibit and you walk through the reality of what it would have been like to be an eight-year-old Jew in Germany during the Holocaust. And your, your parents being taken on this day and your, your possessions being removed and you having to wear insignia that is a mockery to you and all of the, the things that happen. But if you were, were to back up and begin at the very start of this display, what you'll find is a is a video that begins by trying to trace back hostility towards the Jews to Christian people, and particularly Martin Luther. Uh, and what will be argued from a historical standpoint is that ultimately what is being connected is everything you're going to see is an outworking of what Martin Luther said. And what that is, is it's called conflation. It's using what, Mar and listen, Martin Luther was just, let's just say it for what he is. I quote him from time to time. I want you to be clear. When I quote somebody, I'm not saying this is a sinful person who is above reproach all the time. Martin Luther was a card-carrying, capital J, jerk at times. Bombastic. We would never be like that, right, Brian? No. He said some things that were totally uh, wrong especially as it relates to the Jewish people. I think that if we probably came to this text, he would have struggled at some point. But to say that Martin Luther is the reason for the Holocaust is a logical fallacy to the hilt. 
They're not the same thing. There are certainly times throughout church history that we sense a hostility, but often behind those things, friends, don't, don't take quid pro quos. And, and, and this is so, so easy for us. In our, everybody is victimized in our culture, and everybody else is the oppressor, which is, which is a whole bunch of Marxist nonsense that has crept into our communities. And so people will say, well, this group is is responsible for this. What you have to do is slow down and really know your history. Okay, the Christians were were here and they were part of this and maybe bear some responsibility not to respond at a certain time, but you also need to look for what are the political pressures, what's the totality of the circumstances surrounding a particular issue. What I'm trying to encourage you with this morning is that if you come in contact with someone that tells you you should renounce your heritage as a Christian because of anti-Semitism at this point or that point, There certainly is a reality that hands are not clean completely, but I also think that you need to be very discerning in your historical perspective. And it's also interesting to note that the liberals that pander some of this nonsense are the very ones who are the most anti-Semitic vocally right now. And often what they do is they will will argue, I didn't want to say, I don't want to go down all of these rabbit trails. There's a, a member of the House of Representatives, I think, in the past two weeks who, who broke with our current sitting president because she says he's against Hamas and Palestine. And so her, her, her assertion was, I will not support you if you are against my people. There was a time that just in the nation we understood what treason is. That you go to the House of Representatives to represent your constituent people in your district, not someone across the world, not your ethnic background. And all of this is just a churning mess, and I'm trying to get out of it. What I want us to see in this text is that the church is led by the Lord Jesus Christ, and the true church will follow his lead, and he was never given to buckling under the weight of the oppression and the resistance of the religious elite out of his own ethnic group, he was also not given to bitterness, and neither should we be. So as we try to synthesize our understanding of the Jewish people ethnically, what I promise you is this, Jesus has never been opposed to the Jews as an ethnic people. And and, and ultimately behind that, even those who are Friends, one of the greatest encouragements in my life is a little Jewish man that was educated in Edinburgh, talks with a British accent, fabulous man, theologically erudite, and and was raised to be a rabbi. But God, by His sovereign grace, saved that man. And we should always live without a response to the hostility towards the gospel and without becoming embittered people to the nation of Israel. Some also accuse the Bible of being anti-Semitic. we got to pedal fast. They say that the Gospels speak of the Jews as the problem. So as we come this morning, I want you to see that there's opposition from the Jews, but the Jews aren't the problem. Sin is the problem. Jews, in the religious elite sense, are merely responding out of their sin and their fear and their trepidation towards Jesus. 
The New Testament does lament a general failure of the Jews to believe and to turn to Christ, but it does not show hostility or bitterness against those who oppose the gospel. Paul is a, 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 <clears throat> would be considered a prime offender, and this is one of the this is the arch example of how we are to balance our mind out with the gospel. If there's an emphasis from a Christian writer that says we should be hateful towards and embittered towards the Jewish people, I would contend they need to think through Paul. Here is a man who openly says that he condemns the church. If you're looking at this Jewish elite population who hated the gospel, Paul was the very pinnacle of that reality. Paul was the Jew of Jews. Romans No, I'm sorry, I didn't write it down. He was he was ultimately sorry. The the the, the one who was persecuting the church, and what does God do? But he saves him. He brings him to redemption such that then he goes on to say in Romans chapter 3, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And in chapter 9 of that same letter, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the beginning of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. He grieves in his writing over those who are ethnically part of him and yet who are spiritually apart from him. He desires that they come to repentance and faith. But I don't think, and some people will point out, I have a family member who when I mention Paul's writing, they always go, ugh. He's so terse. He's so sharp. He's so bombastic. And I always go, yeah, isn't it great? I don't feel alone in the world. Um, in all of that, what you find is a man who has so, been so... Why is he so bombastic? Why is he so pointed? It's because he's been radically changed by the grace of God. And anything that would oppose the church of God... Paul is not going to just wink at it. He's going to deal with it. But it's never with a desire to lead in with hate and a refutation of an entire ethnic group. He, in fact, is seeking to be redemptive. To wake. Sometimes you say things to try and wake people up. Uh, when the Judaizers come and say, to come to Christ you must be uh, not only repentant, but circumcised. Paul's the guy that says, well, why don't you just cut the whole thing off? Whoa, hold on. Every man in the room goes, hey. Paul there is not being hateful. He's being emphatic. The gospel matters, and it is by the gospel and the grace of God alone that you can be saved. Not through circumcision, not through the law, only through Jesus. That's what he's trying to communicate. He is in no way communicating hate. And where the church has spoken hatefully towards the nation of Israel, let it be silenced. What we do see, and this is going to get me into trouble, again, my theological camp, somebody's going to be upset on one side, some on the other. God bless you all. One of the things that I do believe, regardless of your eschatological position, is that the New Testament does seem to point to a future time when Israel will receive as a whole her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
as individual uh, Jewish people do today. I don't believe that ethnic Israel will be saved apart from the meritorious work of Jesus. I don't believe that at all. But I do believe that the New Testament points, and, and I hope for this. I, 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 regardless of your theological camp, I hope you pray for this. That every Jew would come to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because you're pay, praying alongside of Paul if you do that. Wouldn't that be glorious as individuals like James uh, Adams, my rabbi Jewish friend, as he repented and believed, wouldn't it be wonderful if his entire... I remember he was raised in a home uh, where his, both of his parents were medical doctors. They didn't have a whole lot of, of uh, good things to say about Christian people. In fact, when he became a Baptist pastor, they held a funeral for him. No longer deal with him. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all of his family came to the Lord Jesus Christ? Wouldn't it be wonderful if that is part of our eschatology, we can be hopeful in that way. And not only does there seem to be some biblical warrant to believe that, I also think that if you're going to interpret your Bible, you need to read providence. Not on the sign. You need to know history. How is it that this little nation that has been so besieged by so much tyranny and radical hate throughout the generations, how is it that they exist to this day? With voices in our Congress today wanting to pull back any support and, and tell them that they've got to... What if somebody would have told us on 9-11, you need to have a ceasefire? How is it that this nation has persevered? It's not persevered. It's been preserved. Now, I want to be clear in what I say. No one, on the authority of John's words, which were inspired of God, no one will ever be saved because of their ethnicity. They will be saved by grace and by grace alone. But I promise you this, God can do for any group, any ethnic group, whatever He pleases. What is clearly distinguishing in our own day is again this justification of terrorism because of a liberal bias against Israel, because of liberal ideologies. You want to know why in schools, Cam, little boys are being told that they can be little girls? It's because of an entire Marxist ideology that we hold on to. You want to know why people hate Israel? It's because of Marxism that has crept in and people think that, 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 that Hamas is this oppressed group of people with RPGs in their hands murdering children. It's because our minds have been warped by something that is untrue. It's because people forget history. Every time someone comes, it, think about it. This is the nation that has endured many trials, toils, and snares. Why has it come to exist in the year 2024? I believe only because of the providential hand of God. And this group of people is not the oppressor. If anyone tries to convince you of that, what they are revealing is not just an ideology, liberally. They are revealing to you their absolute divorce from reality and a misunderstanding of the historical record. You see, I get a little bit worked up. 
What do we take away from this today? Why all of this? Well, one, I want us to see the Jewish elite are the problem. And we're going to deal with that in their hostility in the coming weeks. And we're going to deal with it in a pointed issue in the next four weeks. But how do we respond? We see that Jesus didn't respond even to the worst of religious, the religious elite with hate. Again, he saved and used Paul. Galatians chapter 1, Paul writes, For I would have you to know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through the, a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I, now isn't that interesting? Paul tried to destroy the church. The world tries to destroy Israel. And if God doesn't want either one destroyed, not going to work for what it's worth. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, a doctrine of election, and, and who called me by grace was pleased to reveal the Son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I do not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus, continuing in verse 22, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Jesus never buckled to the hatred against him, and he never became bitter. Think of it even as he goes to do the will of the Father and he is arrested there. And Simon Peter in John chapter 18, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to Peter, put away your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus didn't flee like a coward at those who were hostile to Him, but He also did not give way to bitterness. He did the will of the Father. And we will see that over the next several weeks. So how do we follow this example? How do we, how do we live lives, beloved, this morning? I hope this has fallen on you like a ton of bricks. That it's loosened you from your little theological camps, as it were, that are tertiary to the, doc, to, the, to the gospel. And that you're willing to live before God, not becoming embittered towards those who are hostile towards you. How do you live that life? Dallas, do you think you and I, this afternoon, can just gin up enough strength in our own merits to live the Christian life in the way that Jesus would have us? Not a chance. As my grandfather would say, not a snowball's chance in a very warm place. <laughs> okay. <laughs> On one side lies cowardice and buckling to hostility. On the other side 
lies the bitterness that comes often as we contend not for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, but we contend for our own theological ideology. And the way forward, the way through, is only to remove our eyes from these things and to focus on the one who is before all things. As the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, therefore since we, have, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God beloved do you keep your eyes on Jesus do you continue to allow His Word to form and mold Him in your mind that you might live faithfully, not buckling to the pressure of the hostility of this world and not giving away to bitterness? I pray that this would be so in this place for our own generation. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before You today so thankful for Your Gospel. We are so thankful that You moved in the direction of each one of us even as we were hostile towards You in our trespasses and sins, that You did not live embittered and that You did not cower to that hostility, but You moved in such a way that You completed the redemptive works that the Father had given to You to do, Jesus. You've completed those works now and you've, see, you've been seated at the right hand of majesty and now we can lift our eyes and we can look to You knowing You are the author and finisher of our faith, that You are molding us at this very hour. Father, might we be molded by Your Spirit in Your hand and Your truth and not by the silly dictates of man. Might we be conformed into the glorious image of Christ, not that we might glory in ourselves, but that You would be glorified. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things.